Good morning. This morning we're going to be in 1 Kings 8. This is Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. We're starting in verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire congregation of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him, and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep what you promised to your servant, my father David. You will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take care to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, Lord God of Israel, please confirm what you promised to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may watch over this temple night and day toward the place where you said, my name will be there, and so that you may hear the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the petition of your servant and your people Israel, which they pray toward this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. When a man sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and he comes to take an oath before your altar in this temple, may you hear in heaven and act. May you judge your servants, condemning the wicked man by bringing what he has done on his own head and providing justice for the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they return to you and praise your name and they pray and plead with you for mercy in this temple, may you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel. May you restore them to the land you gave their ancestors. When the skies are shut and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and praise your name and they turn from their sins because you are afflicting them, may you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel so that you may teach them to walk on the good way. May you send rain on your land that you gave your people for an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, when there is pestilence, when there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, when their enemy besieges them in the land and its cities, when there is any plague or illness, every prayer or petition that any person or that all your people Israel may have, they each know their own affliction, as they spread out their hands toward this temple, may you hear in heaven your dwelling place, and may you forgive, act, and give to everyone according to all their ways, since you know each heart, for you alone know every human heart, so that they may fear you all the days they live on the land you gave our ancestors. Even for the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name, strong hand and outstretched arm, and will come and pray toward this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner asks. Then all peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do, and to know that this temple I have built bears your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Mr. Price, uh, I'm sure you, uh, you may have noticed that uh, this particular worship service is going to be a little different than our, uh, our conventional Sunday morning services. We had a, a, an extra song here before the message. The message itself is going to be um, different than normal afterwards. 
we will pray in a way a little different than normal. We're going to sing more songs than normal and hopefully do justice to this text's occasion, which asks us to consider what do we do when we enter into the presence of the Lord? What does worship look like? What does coming to him entail? And what can we expect as a result? You know, sometimes just being there, being with someone, counts for more than we know. Um, After years of being unable to go, my wife Rachel finally had the opportunity to go to Women's Encounter this weekend. Do you think I should go, she asked me. And it wasn't that she was uninterested in spending time with sisters in the Lord or uninterested in using a weekend to, to focus on the Lord in a unique way. She asked me that because she knows her kids, and maybe even more so her husband, really like it when she's home with us. Do you think I should go? I told her, yes, I think you being there actually matters more than you think. Um, There'll be ladies from our life group there. I think it would be good to spend the weekend growing closer to them. There'll be young women that you knew when they were in college and you, you poured into them. There'll be older women who have poured into you that you look up to and respect and have, have learned a lot from. I think you should go. I think you, you being there matters. And of course, Rachel being at home matters a lot too. Um, or so it's been explained to me countless times this weekend from my children. They, uh, they prefer her brand of parenting to mine. <laughs> Little comments here, exasperated sighs there. Uh, this, this little refrain from my seven-year-old, I just miss mommy so much. She doesn't mean it to be offensive. Um, I told her, I get it. I wish she was here too. This is hard on all of us. Seven years ago, Audrey was born in April, which is a great time when your wife does college ministry to have a newborn baby. Things are going to kind of slow down in the summer. But she's still pretty young when August, September kicks off. And at that point, Rachel had a more active involvement in our college ministry in terms of being at their events and working with the students. And uh, most of that stuff takes place in the evenings. So... I, for the first time, found myself just with a baby I cannot console at a really inconvenient time of day for me and the things that I would like to be doing. And I would, I would let Rachel obviously do what she needs to do, but there would always be these little texts. Man, this would be easier if you were here. Her, her presence really mattered to me at that point. For the last couple of years, I've had uh, to be in Pennsylvania for a week at a time, a couple of times a year. And um, in addition to mission trips and other things that take me away from home, you know, it's, it's great that I can call. I can call now and I can even see their faces. And I get, I, I'll talk to my kids and I'll ask them how their day is going. And, and they don't really seem to be so upset that I'm gone as they are when she's gone. Again, I don't think they mean any offense. 
But I get the report from them on just what a delight it is. And then the phone is passed to my wife and her eyes are dark underneath and I get the real report on how things are going. And even Rachel will say, it would just be easier if you were here. In as far as it's up to you, do not miss your flights. <laughs> and I get it. You left asking the question, why does someone simply being nearby create so much comfort and confidence? I bought my first car from my dad. It was a 1994 Nissan. He gave me a sweet deal. Bought my second car from my dad, a 1996 Honda. Again, great deal. In college, I bought my first car just on my own, not from any family members, just me and a third party working things out. And I found out really quickly, I hate the haggling process. I found myself literally thinking, I wish my dad could be sitting next to me to kind of walk me through this thing I've never done before. Just the idea of him probably, most certainly knowing a lot more about this process than me would have given me comfort, but he wasn't there, and he quite frankly didn't really need to be. But being there matters. Famously, when Lazarus passes away, his sister Martha storms up to Jesus. I don't think in an irreverent way, but in a way that probably is missing the point. It says, if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. As our world increasingly becomes digital and digital, we increasingly become more and more distant from one another, at least geographically so. Physical proximity seems to be a concern of the past. I don't need you in the same zip code, area code, state, or even country to have immediate access to you, or so it seems. Being nearby is coming into this, this part of human history where it just doesn't seem as important to us as it once did. That is, until you really need something. Then all of a sudden, I just really need you to be here. This is bigger than I can handle without your physical closeness. That was the point of the temple in Jerusalem. Though God was and always has been everywhere all the time, Israel wanted to build this temple so that they could have a special place where his presence could be felt in a very special and unique way. If we back up to the beginning of 1 Kings 8, prior to the section that Bryce read, it says in verse 6 that the priests brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place beneath the wings of the cherubim, the ark, of course, representing God's unique covenantal presence with his people. And then after building this beautiful structure, Solomon goes in to consecrate it. They bring in the ark, and you have the prayer of dedication, and the Lord takes up his residence in one of the most spectacular narratives in the Old Testament. I can just imagine as the cloud descends on the temple and it becomes so dark that no one can see. I, I would just love to have been there to see all these priests screaming, running out as the Lord takes 
his residence. In verse 10, it says, when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord said that he would dwell in total darkness. I indeed have built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. In a most overwhelming way, God yet again drew close to his people. The same cloud that hung over Mount Sinai as Yahweh taught the law to Moses now fell down on the lavish temple built by David's son. Of course, this appears to be a richer, more permanent version of the tabernacle in the wilderness where God was dwelling with his chosen people, but we must not forget that all of it echoes the original sanctuary that allowed God and humanity to commune in the most intimate of ways. The Garden of Eden was indeed the first temple. You see, the presence of the Lord has always been an important thing to the nation of Israel. In fact, its importance is underscored when we consider that God's presence was one of the first things that was lost in the wake of sin's intrusion. Our first parents had to leave the garden temple where God dwelled. Yet though human sin and life lived in the presence of the Lord tend to work against one another, God's faithfulness to his covenantal promises are the basis for humanity's hope to again live in communion with our creator. In verse 22, we get this beautiful prayer from Solomon as he articulates what this temple is to be used for. He stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire congregation of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. In effect, Solomon is telling us that the temple is a small part, but perhaps an increasingly important part of God's faithfulness to his promises that he made to Abraham, those promises that he made to Moses in the giving of the law, the promises he made to Solomon's father, David. And because of God's covenantal goodness, He's designed a way for his people to again live in his presence. It seems that one of the most important points of being near God is to be able to worship him for who he is, to know him as he actually is. This story in 1 Kings 8 tells us about the people of God having a place to worship the Lord and experiencing his grace and his kindness as a result. Some of the most beautiful aspects of his character. Verse 27 Solomon continues, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I've built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and prayer that your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may watch over this temple night and day toward the place where you said, my name will be there and so that you may hear the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the petition of your servant and your people Israel, which they may pray toward this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. This temple was never going to be able to contain God, yet he graciously chose to draw near to his chosen people here. 
And this temple was never going to contain God, but Israel now had a place to worship him and from which they could pray for his mercy. The temple was never going to contain God. But God, listening from his dwelling place in heaven, could be counted on to hear and forgive his people. In effect, the temple was yet another signpost that said God was on mission. He's been on mission since the garden. He's been on mission since he began to move Abram, change his name to Abraham and create a nation through him. God was on mission, and his presence was meant to draw humanity in so that we may experience his perfect grace and healing. Here, that mission was first experienced by Israel, but it was never meant to remain limited to Israel. In verse 41 of 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays, even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, For they will hear of your great name, strong hand and outstretched arm, and will come and pray toward this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner asks. Then all the peoples of earth will know your name, to fear you as your people Israel do, and to know that this temple I have built bears your name. So the temple built in Jerusalem by the nation of Israel was meant to be a blessing to the nations. The God who took up residence in that temple's holy of holies was to be a blessing to the nations, continuing his missional fulfillment of the promises we heard him make to Abraham last week. And what's more, we find out later on that God's presence actually had very little to do with the building itself. Years later, speaking to the people of God as they are about to go into captivity and experience divine judgment for their infidelity to God's covenant. The prophet Jeremiah tells them something about what this is going to look like when it's all said and done. He says in Jeremiah 3, when you multiply and increase in the land in those days, this is the Lord's declaration, no one will say again, the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind, and no one will remember or miss it. Another one will not be made. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne, and all the nations will be gathered to it. To the name of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. A time was coming, you see, when there would be no holy of holies. Yet the Lord's presence would still draw in the nations, and they would know him as God. And they would follow him in obedience. And today, you and I don't have a temple to turn to. At least not one in Jerusalem. At least not one made with human hands. Because as is his tendency, Jesus came along and just changed things up. Not in a way where it was like a second plan but in a way that for some reason the people of God didn't see it working out this way. John's Gospel tells one of the four stories of Jesus' life, and it begins by telling us of the Lord's presence in rather surprising terms. 
John chapter 1 begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Presence matters. And the one John's story is about has been present with his Father in heaven for all eternity. Later on in verse 14, the evangelist tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, he's dwelling among us. His glory is observable and grace is poured out. It sure sounds like a temple. Presence matters. And the one John's story is about is about to present, is now present with humanity. You see, if the temple was meant to be the place for Israel to draw close to God's presence, if the temple was meant to be the place for Israel to pray to God, if the temple was meant to be the place where Israel would experience God's grace and his healing, then what is Jesus? Jesus is the very definition of God's presence among us. Jesus hears our prayers, Jesus pours out his grace, and Jesus heals our deepest afflictions. In fact, Paul tells us that those of us who, by the way, we're the nations, Paul tells us that those of us who come to Jesus to pray and receive his grace are in fact becoming something altogether new. In the back half of Ephesians chapter 2, he puts it like this, so then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility." In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. Presence matters. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So we were foreigners. We were separated from God. We were separated from one another. But now we are fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household. And yet another crazy part is 
We are now becoming the place for God's spirit to dwell. We need to let that sink in. We are now the temple. Elsewhere, Paul tells the believers in Corinth, don't you yourselves know that you're God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. You see, when we understand our status as the collective temple of the living God, it certainly helps shape our understanding of God's mission for the world and the role he's tasked us with playing. As the temple, God's church is to be the place with the nations come to experience the presence of the Lord. As the temple, we should be living testimonies to what lives of prayer and worship look like. As the temple, we should demonstrate the transformative power of God's healing grace and forgiveness. As we follow Jesus, God's mission for the lost is on display. Or as New Testament scholar G.K. Beale puts it, God's presence grows among his priestly people by their knowing his word, believing it, and by obeying it. And then they spread that presence to others by living their lives fully and prayerfully in the world. Presence matters. And God is present in you. God is present in us. As his presence transforms our hearts, souls, and minds, the world should take notice. And perhaps by God's grace, more will come to know him as a result. We are a temple, purpose built for worship and prayer. So it's fitting to conclude this time of studying God's word by going to a section of his scripture where song breaks out and praise. Psalm 67 says this, borrowing the great blessing from numbers. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. In light of that, in light of our status, our standing as the temple of the Lord, constructed of the nations who have come to seek him, serve him, and obey him. We're going to invite some friends up. And what we're going to do is we're going to pray in multiple languages as not only true requests asking God to carry his mission to the ends of the earth, but as also a living testimony to the fact that he's already there. So I'm going to ask my friends here, we have a prayer, five sections. They're going to be praying their part in their mother tongue. Philip's going to be praying his part in his wife's mother's tongue. And then 
The prayer will be on the screens in English. So, Mike, if you would please pray for us. Padre Celestial, tú creaste a cada persona en esta tierra y tú enviaste a tu hijo Jesús a predicar el evangelio de la paz a aquellos que están lejos y a aquellos que están cerca. Wabuteremase ibarabime natumanimamba idokise iori sesemamba korbima iya amana yakiri nibiechu se iya ibifiafia temebese ma inemika se pasipuseme apuma ogonabana. Shinai 来完成您给的为世人传福音的命令 Jésus a dit La moisson est grande mais les laboureurs sont peu Cher Seigneur, nous te demandons de nous utiliser pour ton travail Garde-nous de toute tentation de garder le silence à propos de ton message Réunissez les perdus dans ta miséricorde et pour ta grâce pour ta gloire Amen Lord and Savior you stretched out your loving arms on the hard wood of the cross so that all may come within the reach of your saving embrace empower us by your spirit so that we may too reach out with hands of love and bring those who do not know you to the foot of the cross for the honor of your name Amen. Amen. Though we have many nations, many languages, the cool part of the gospel is that we have one Savior and we share one meal. This represents that which tore down that dividing wall of hostility. And this represents the fact that God has been on mission far longer than we could imagine. This has been the plan from the beginning. That the entire creation would be united to the Father through the sacrificial work of His Son and the power of His Spirit. So each week we gather Different backgrounds and languages, one meal. So take body given for you. And the blood poured out for our redemption. Amen.